Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Sherry Turkle is the author of The Empathy Diaries, a memoir. She is also the Abby Rockefeller Mose Professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology at MIT and the founding director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and the author of six books, including Alone Together and the New York Times bestseller Reclaiming Conversation. Her latest book, The Empathy Diaries, was just published. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the Empathy Diaries. I'm so happy to be here. I listen, I listen to this and I, I'm a mom who has time to read books, but I listen anyway. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, at least then you'll get lots of other recommendations. And... <laughs> well, but I'm a special mom because I'm a professor. So my day job is reading books. So I don't have that excuse. Well, there you go. <laughs> I'm in a special mom category. Yeah, well, I feel like you're the coolest professor there can be because you, your whole life is like technology meets emotion and all of that. I mean, what cooler things to to even learn about and then to read about? I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, except that then the technologies get technologists get mad at you because they say, no, no, it's just a tool. A computer is just a tool. There's no emotion. You're just a girl. You're just reading into it. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> well, Do they really you know, say that to you, that type of thing? Wow. Well, less now because now tech companies are realizing that they can market their computers as having personalities. But for the longest time, that was really, I mean, seriously, that was my, uh, I don't want to say my cross to bear, but my struggle at MIT was that people would say, you pursue this, you will not get tenure. People garbage in, garbage out. It is not a thing to argue that it's an intimate machine, it's computer is Rorschach. I mean, that is not a, that's not what we're pushing. That's not what it is. A technology is just a blank screen. It's just a neutral tool. Hmm. People who were saying, no, it's, it, you know, when I put a piece of my mind into the computer's mind, did I come to see it differently? That's not just a tool. So I, I've gotten some pushback. Yeah. Wow. Well, I feel like the most, the geniuses over time are ones who start in a new way, right? And do go against the grain. So I, you know, you know, you're, right. You rarely hear like, oh, I did everything everybody wanted. <laughs> I don't mind you thinking I'm the coolest mom. Okay. I don't, I don't mind you thinking I'm the great. Mom. My daughter will hear it. A big cred. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your book, which as someone who like thinks a lot about empathy in general and is like the hugest proponent of it as like the central force to like improve the entire world, having a book come across <laughs> the empathy diaries, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, <laughs> this looks amazing. <laughs> and of course you open it up in such a like not nail biting, but like this way of you trying to find your father and then, uh, you know, right up front, like figuring out this big thing that he was doing as a child and why your mother had kept him from you to begin with and this whole thing and all these pictures of your family, like you're in it with you right away. Like it was awesome. Right. Well, I start that way 
because the central problem of my life as a child was why did my mother, she left him without telling me why. When I was one years old, she called her sister and said, we're packing, we're leaving. She, as my aunt tells it, she put a few, you know, she didn't have luggage. She put a few A&P boxes, bags together with some underwear and a dress and some diapers for me. And she went back to live with her parents where my aunt, who was not married, was also living. But the thing is that they didn't want me to know his name. They didn't want to talk about him in front of me. I didn't know his name. We weren't allowed to talk about him. And then when she remarried, wanted to use her new husband's name, Turkle, way before he legally adopted me. So I wasn't, I was, I was Sherry Turkle officially, even when it wasn't official. So the mystery for me was why was she keeping me from him? And it was the kind of thing where you couldn't say, hey, mom, look, I know there's something really bad going on here, but talk to me, talk to me. I, I know it's bad, but any talk would be better than what I'm imagining. It was before the days you could do that. I tried to evoke a world where children did not say those sorts of things to parents. And where I came home, my name was Sherry Zimmerman in school, but I had to lock up my homework and all of my books so that my sister and brother would not see them, my half-sister and brother, from her new marriage, because they never knew I had another father. So I begin the book with the kind of mystery of what the book will be about and tell the reader to be on my mother's side a little bit, that there was a reason. And I don't tell you the reason until it comes up in the narrative of the story. And I, you know, I don't go into detail until I find him and I get the, <laughs> the full, <laughs> I get the full blast. But I want the reader to be on her side because for so many years I wasn't on her side. And I think that's very important. I didn't have empathy for her. Empathy for me was a way to do the detective work of trying to figure out what could possibly be on her mind, that she would do such a thing. So it was a a detective work. It was a strategy for survival rather than really a, a way of reaching out to her, understanding her, being able to put myself in her place. And, and that's the kind of distinction I draw in the book, that empathy isn't, you know, empathy that can heal is really being able to understand somebody else's problem and say, you know, I'm sticking with you with this problem and I'm committing myself to you. And she didn't allow me to do that. So that's why empathy is so important to me, because she didn't allow me to do that. And then tragically, she passes away when you were, what, 18 or 19? Or I was 18 when she passed. I'm so sorry. And you were so, I mean, tell me about that moment. And then when you had to sort of reconcile all the stuff you didn't know, and then the loss with sort of this unresolved feelings in the midst of your, of, you know, I mean, that's a tricky time between mothers and daughters, I would say, sort of across the board. Right. Well, what made it trickier and what I try to do in the Empathy Diaries is I was so angry at her. I adored her. 
she was everything I wanted to be. And I'm really, I'm really not all the things she was. I mean, she was tall and she was, I sort of stopped at five, four, you know, kind of, I could Taller not. than me. So you know, <laughs> I'd take five, four on a good day. So thank you. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm now kind of shrinking back down to five, three and a half, but I mean, I couldn't, but she was, you know, she was tall and voluptuous and funny and I mean, everything, I, in, in terms of her personality, I really tried to emulate her. And she was warm and, and compassionate. And it was this thing about my, my, this secret about my father that was, the, that was the sticking point. But I was so angry at her because she took him away from me without any explanation. And I sensed, and this, of course, was for no reason, that I somehow was like him. Because, which turned out to be true, he turned out to be a very intellectual man. And my family was super smart. The Bonowitzes, you know, her side of the family, they were super smart. Uh, my grandfather, I mean, he was, he read the, every newspaper, he read them back and forwards and uh, upside down. He was always saying, he was always saying, though, is this good for the Jews? I mean, he'd read about something, in, you know, in like you know, in the deepest Africa. And he would like, be trying to, about Patrice Lumumba, and he would be like trying to figure out, you know, whether whether this was good for the oh my Jews. Gosh. I have to show you this book, which I just, <laughs> do you have this yet? The newest Jewish encyclopedia? No. Because no, literally no. at the end of every chapter, they say, but is it good for the Jews? I mean, exactly. so funny you just said that. Oh my gosh. Anyway. That was my grandfather, but he was super smart. He had to drop out of school when he was 12, but he was just super smart. And my grandmother was smart and my aunt was smart. So the Bonowitzes were very smart. But it turns out that my father, my biological father, the Zimmerman guy, she was drawn to him because he was very intellectual. And I sensed that there was something in my intellectuality that kind of came from him. So without even knowing him, I I identified with him. And of course, he was forbidden. So that made him more. Who could he be? Why was he taken away? What had he done? And I was angry at her. And this anger came out in weird bursts because I technically loved her so much. And there are a few episodes in the book which were the bravest things for me to put in because I show my anger at her. And I put them in and I took them out and I put them in and I took them out because I didn't want to show how mean I was to my mother. And people say, oh, but you showed your husband being unfaithful to you. You showed your... nothing compared <laughs> to that I showed I was mean to my mother. And there's one episode we're going to an interview at Radcliffe College where I so wanted to go. And she had not told me of her cancer because she knew that I would stay home and not go away to college, which I so wanted to do. It was my dream if I knew about this about this cancer. I would, I would have just wanted to be with her in her last years. And it, to the interview, one of the clips that she used to kind of keep the bouffant style of her hair, she had left because she kept them in all night to kind of keep the line of the hair. And she had left it in for the interview. She had forgotten to take it out. And as we came out of the interview, I said to her, mommy, I'm so ashamed you you left in a clip. And it, it was like telling her, you've ruined it for me. You've ruined it for us. You know, there was that clip. You, 
He showed us to be who we were, that we don't belong here. And it was so cruel. And I say, if I could have one do-over in life, that would be my do-over. It was so cruel. It's okay. It's okay. Thank you. But honestly, it's as though I want absolutely... I think the reason the book has a certain... You know, what I like about the book and where I think the book is really me is that it almost asks the reader to say, is it okay, you know, do you forgive forgive me? I'm not over it yet. I could, with all my analyses and all my, you know, I'm just getting over it. The book has been a healing because I realized that there was no way for me to not be angry at her, that I had to, I had to, at that point, not knowing that she saved me by leaving my father, I had to be angry at her. So it, the, the book really has been a journey in that way. But that is, that is the kind of story I tell because I was just separating from her, being angry at her. Maybe I was going to confront her about this father thing. Like, okay, look, I'm, you know, 18 years old. I'm going to be 19. You know what? Now it's time to talk to me. Maybe I should meet him. Maybe we should talk about him. Maybe I should see him before he dies. I should know who he is. I should know what he did. You know, was he abusive? Was it, I need to, and she dies. And so then later in the book, I, I find him with private detectives and there's a whole second chapter. But the story of my mom and how I had to get closer to her is really, it's, it's why I needed empathy. The kind of empathy that could let me try to get into her head and figure out what she wouldn't tell me. Oh, well, I just, all those unresolved feelings, you know, I, this sounds so hokey to say out loud, but, you know, just because you pause the movie at a bad place doesn't mean it's not a wonderful movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, just because that's where your relationship had to end chronologically doesn't mean that she didn't take all the positives along with her. Like, she knew how much you loved her. I, so, and, I mean, I feel like your regret comes from, like, her not feeling that love or respect, right, and that you diminished her in that moment when really that's not how you felt. But she knew how you felt for real. I'm sure she did. Yes, Yes, that's my comfort, is I think my mother knew that I... I of course she did. My mother knew that I deeply loved her. And then with the empathy piece, too, I mean, when you meet your dad, and, like, he exhibited, like, zero empathy. Like, as you po- you sort of pointed out, like, <laughs> he is, like, you know, when I first started reading about him, I was like, maybe he's, like, autistic, or he's on the spectrum, or... I think he right? is on the spectrum. I think he is on the spectrum, in fact. And actually, I think that was part... You know, you have to put yourself, I've been reading to do my research. I read a lot about the attitudes of people towards people on the spectrum, people who are autistic, people who are a little off, a little crazy. And I think that my mother's wanting him out of my life had many dimensions. So one dimension is that he was treating me in ways that people on the spectrum treat people. I mean, he was treating me like an object. He didn't know how to treat like I would say, a real girl, not a Pinocchio, but a real girl. <laughs> so he was treating me, he was objectifying me, he treated me like a doll. And I think she took, you know, she took a look at that and she was out. But more than that, I think when she realized that he was not in some ways relational mm-hmm. in the way she needed him to be for her child, 
not not to mention their marriage. I mean, you know, because I, I'm sure it wasn't a happy marriage. But I think when she saw him relating to me like a doll, and she didn't have words for it, but she knew he wasn't all right. Mm-hmm. There was a tremendous stigma. Number one, she had married somebody mentally ill. Oh, my God. It, it was in her community, in her Jewish community at that point. That was like bad, number two, and perhaps she wouldn't be able to marry again. Number two, she had a child by this man. And what about the genetics of me? I think in that world, I would have been stigmatized. So she wanted to keep, she wanted it not to be known that she was married, not to be known who she was married to, not to be known why she was divorced, and not to be known that there was a taint of potential something with something in me because she was worried for my future. All of these things, which today we don't even think about, were on my mother's mind. And when I was just dishing out my little cruelties because she wouldn't talk to me, I wasn't thinking about any of this, none. And actually, I have to say that it wasn't until the book was sort of finished that I had many of these revelations. Mm. So the book isn't even, the book for me was, in so many areas, was a project of discovery. And now I have some more things to say, you know, about really what I learned. Because I don't think I... I, I, I don't think I discussed, I mean, I imply, but I don't think I took the full measure of some of these things that were on her mind. Hmm. I don't sort of stop the narrative and say, hey, look at how mental illness was considered in the 60s. You know, I don't, I, I keep the story going and I let the reader do some of that work. Which is fine. But <laughs> so what was it like for you? I mean, it, clearly this is so emotional and so close to your heart. What yes. was it like sitting down, just you and the computer. I mean, I'm assuming you did it on the computer. What was it like you facing the computer and, and having to get all these thoughts out and, and relive some of these painful moments? It was very different, different days. Mm-hmm. So for example, and even now, I'm a different person for having written it. For example, the memories of Rockaway mm-hmm. and my relationship the, uh, you know, the outtakes of the book, I have a daughter who's now 29. When I finished the first draft of the book, which was, I want to say four times the length of this book, I have an apartment in New York and I printed it out at a, I don't know, a FedEx, you know, kind of, that had a printer because my home printer like was like shaking. <laughs> it was like too much. And I printed it out. I made two copies. I put it on a kind of credenza I have because I tend to lose things. And I just kind of put them there. And I said, Becca, I invited her to dinner. She lives in New York. And I said, Becca, look, this is the, the everything. And you're not going to want to read this now. This is like too much. But, you know, when you're 40, when you're 50, you may want to read the details of like every little shopping list of your great-grandmothers. In the first draft, I was so into it that I have great grandma's Monday shopping list, Tuesday shopping list, the special Wednesday shopping list, because Wednesday 
My grandfather had a sort of late day off. Kind of his, his time was a little different coming home from the theater. He was a he was a manager of a Times Square theater. So we had breakfast together, and she bought this thing that was expensive called sturgeon, mm-hmm. which never ate any other day of the week. And I include this detail in, in, <laughs> because I got so into the pleasure of recreating Brooklyn in the 50s. And also chapters on Essie, who, who ran the, 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 the sweet shop and what she was like and what, that she went to Florida in the winter and how every, all the boys were in love with her because she was big bosomed and the girls wanted to... I, I just had, I mean, I just got into like Proustian. I was like in a new space. And as I discovered, as I rediscovered my mother's affection for Archie and Veronica comics and how she wanted to be Veronica and how, I mean, I, and scenes of being on subway stations with her where she bought blackjack chewing gum. And then I went out and found that you could still get blackjack chewing gum. And I went through a month of, Chewing blackjack, chewing gum, much to my dentist. <laughs> what is going on here? Don't you know that you have, you know, fillings? You know that you can't do that. You know, well, who do you think you are? You know, some five-year-old with your mother chewing blackjack, chewing gum. <laughs> so some of it was very, like, pleasurable, like being in a, and then some of it was so hard because I knew that I. I didn't want to tell a story that was like me, 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 me. You know, the story, everything in the book had to serve a higher purpose. I haven't, I have a, you know, Vivian Gornick talks about the situation and the story. I mean, I have a story, but I also really am trying to make some points about robot psychotherapy and about, you know, and about that the world shouldn't be friction free, that people don't operate like that and about empathy and about healing and about the pandemic and about, but everything had to have a purpose. But I did want to show vulnerability about myself because I think that so much of my point is that vulnerability is where empathy is born that if people couldn't feel empathic with me, I hadn't done my job. And if I just was, you know, little Miss Smarty, little Miss Smarty does great, takes great tests, and then as little Miss Smarty takes great tests the next school and more little Miss Smarty, you know, that wasn't going to work. And so I include stories that were very painful, and that was, that was hard. But in general, it was, a, it was a book, as I say, of great writing about myself was... And the objects of my life was, was a, I think it was a very healing exercise. Wow. Well, and you do a fantastic job. The parts about Rockaway, I mean, I felt like I was there. Like, I understand now what that was like at that time, in that era, in that place. Like, you just, it was so visual. I felt like I was watching, like, Brighton Beach memoir or something, you know, that movie, like, anyway, so that was great. You transport the reader in both emotion and time and place, which is like, that's great. What else can you ask for in a, in a memoir, really? Plus the secrets, right? And I feel like that's the key to most memoirs, right? The corrosive power of secrets in a family that they, it's like time and time again in different books and different, that's because it's what people are working through 
constantly in sort of understanding themselves, like what was hidden and how does what happens when it comes out. So I don't know. Pretty awesome. <laughs> my mother had secrets. She had these big secrets. You know, my father, that he was that he was ill, that he had done, you know, he had done some, I don't want to give yeah, away. Yeah, don't, I won't, I won't say anything. <laughs> but, you know, there, there is a secret, but, but she also had little secrets. She did have a, a kind of desire to, she, she, her favorite character was Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. And from that movie, she took the idea that you could make the world into your version of the world by force of char- by force of will. So she was this tall, beautiful woman. I mean, she was like, I know she was 5'11". She might have been six feet. And she didn't like that. She thought that wasn't feminine. And so she, this is hysterical. She convinced the women at the Division of Motor Vehicles when she got her license. She was like 5'7", right? <laughs> Every time she went, she said, look, I'm single and I want to catch a husband. And if he thinks I'm a little shorter, it'll be easier. So funny. I always wear flats or heels, you know, those tiny little kitten heels, the little Audrey Hepburn ones with like less than three and a half inches, like almost two and a half inches, you know, just a, with a very shaped little heel. She was a specialist for wearing these sandals. With the, she had a whole wardrobe of these very beautifully shaped, but very low heels so that she could slink along with a 5'10 guy and kind of hunch over, even a 5'9 guy. And kind of, <laughs> but she kept shaving inches off her height. So by the time she died, I had her, I had her wallet, and she was 5'7", which defied imagination. <laughs> and there she was at 5'7", to be shorter than, my, than her current husband. And, I mean, there was no way my mother was 5'7". She walked into a room, and she was like... Yeah. Sid Charisse. I mean, she was, and as a matter of fact, she, she was so happy. She idolized Sid Charisse, mm-hmm. who was Fred Astaire's, one of his last dancing partners, who was exactly 5'11". And I think Fred Astaire was 5'11". And so Sid Charisse wore ballet flats to dance with him. And even then, with, was a little taller than he, but Fred Astaire just says she's a great dancer. Let's do it. And she idolized Sid Charisse. And, and because Sid Charisse just, you know, was tall and proud. And I think that if Sid Charisse had come on the scene a little earlier, my mother might have not shaved so many inches <laughs> off her drop. But then it was too, I joked with her, but mom, now it's like too hard to go back and say you've grown. Right. You can't like go back now and say, now you want to be Sid Charisse. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice would you have to aspiring authors? Start with an object. My book, I wrote a book on evocative objects. And actually the cover of the Empathy Diaries is me in the red car. I think Nancy Drew had a blue roadster, but I I don't remember if it was red or blue, but I think it was blue. But I interpreted it as red and, and I had a red roadster going off to, you know, going off after I graduated college on my adventure of my life. And all the objects that surround me are the objects that were evocative objects. I teach a course on evocative objects, and these are objects that really carry more than the objects themselves. They carry the meaning, they carry the people, they carry 
the things you that you bring them inside and they kind of become part of you. And on the outside are my grandmother's best dishes that she used for Passover and Hanukkah and Rosh Hashanah and a birthday party and anniversary. And they were so special that she said, you know, we weren't wealthy. And she said these, they were bought for her as a wedding present by her mother and her mother's mother. And she said on the Lower East Side of a pushcart. And she said, you know, this is the only thing that will survive me. These dishes will survive me. You will eat on them and your children will eat on them and beyond. And I remember being a little girl and knowing exactly what she meant because she didn't have jewelry or anything to pass on really. And it's true. I cherish them. My daughter cherishes them. And I know that my daughter will use them and her daughter will use them. These dishes will die. I have my grandma's dishes too. Yeah. Well, I mean, she, she knew what she was talking about. And so that the dishes are the frame. And then Nancy Drew Mysteries are just come in the second because they were an evocative object. They were, the, they, were, they were my guide, the cover of the Nancy Drew Mysteries, some of my Nancy Drew Mysteries. And then there's a, a letter that my mother wrote me when I was in Paris at the Rue de Bac. And then there's the photograph, a mysterious photograph of a man taking me out on a lake, which is my one memory of my father, my biological father, Charles Zimmerman, because I was allowed to see him once or twice. He went to court to have the right to see me. And I, it's shrouded in mystery, but I remember that event. And I teach my memoir students that you just begin by talking about an object that means a lot to you. And I began this book by writing about my grandmother's giving me a Smith Corona electric typewriter when I went off to Radcliffe in, in, my, third, in my third year, in my second year. Maybe it was my third, I think it was my second year. Because the whole first year, I had borrowed other girls' typewriters. I had, there was a, the school had a typewriter and it was old and it, my papers looked disgusting and, and she didn't have very much money. And she said she cooked depression cooking <laughs> for two months, you know, like adding a lot of noodles to the soup and a lot of what she called mandals to the soup, which were little fried pastries so that my grandfather wouldn't notice that there wasn't much soup, but there was a lot of, and not much meat, but a lot of these, <laughs> a lot of this pastry in the soup so that she could buy me this typewriter. Probably at the time it cost $40, but she didn't have the $40, but she saved it all summer to buy me this typewriter. And I still have the typewriter and I still write on it when I get writer's block because it just, what forces you to think in sentences, which is something you don't have to do when you write on a computer. But mostly it just brings me back to her love. So that's the best thing you can do. You start writing chunks of things around objects and stay at it for two months. And then read what you've written. Read what the, where the objects have, the, of your life have taken you. And it opens up a lot. Wow. Well, thank you so much. This has been so interesting and moving and emotional and I feel like it's taken me back through my 
mother, grandmother, great grandmother, like as you're talking, I'm like imagining my own. And anyway, so thank you. Thank you for your book and this conversation. And it's been a pleasure getting to know you. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate what you do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 